us ultimately need to be behaviour change experts. And so I think you don't necessarily need to be a behavioural economist, but you do need to be an expert in how to use the science of behaviour to shape outcomes. Welcome to the Smart Business Transformation Podcast, the show for people with a growth mindset who are leading transformation programs. I'm your host, Ben Ramsden, and this week we're talking to Bree Williams, who is the Managing Director and Behavioural Strategist at People Patterns. Now, Bree describes herself as a behaviour explainer. And I started off by asking her to tell us what that is and why it is important. I help people in business understand how others really behave. And that's important because every day in business, our role is to get others to take action. So that's staff, that's customers, that's suppliers. And that can be a frustrating process. And it's all because we've been doing it in the wrong way. So my role is to help people understand how to do it correctly. Oh, that sounds awesome. Now, I was particularly excited to get you on the show because a lot of our business transformation tends to be a bit of a sort of massive project where you start with some big board presentation and um, business case and, uh, you know, you set up a project team and, you know, yada, 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 the train gradually leaves the station and uh, the future is bright and brilliant. I'm sure when we'll get into it later, but my understanding is a lot of what you do is a lot more sort of bite-sized and, you know, can be put into action literally this afternoon. Yeah, it's interesting, Ben, because even in those large transformation projects, ultimately it's the summation of small transformations. So when you break any large exercise down, it comes down to micro opportunities of trying to get people to do things differently. And so the same, the techniques I use on a day-to-day basis for people, and that might be writing an email more effectively or um, presenting in a different way to persuade an audience, you can also use when you're writing a business case, when you're presenting that business case, when you are leading a transformation project, because ultimately everything we are doing has a behavioral basis. We're trying to get others to do something differently. And so it's interesting that the techniques I share with people can scale from a micro issue, could be clicking a button on a website to macro issues. So, you know, policy and societal change. Wow. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. But before we get into the meat of it, um, I'm really curious about um, about how you got to do what you do today because I had a quick squiz at uh, LinkedIn before our call. I see you've got a couple of degrees in applied psychology and accounting. Uh, you've been to Yale. You've worked for Coca-Cola Amatil in sort of both L&D and accounting. You've worked in product development for Thomson's Reuters. You've worked for the good old White Pages business. Um, can you join the dots for us, please, and just, just understand how you've got to do what you would, what you do today? <laughs> it is funny how your career um, emerges, isn't it? So I, I guess um, I, I'll take you back to enrolment day when I went to university. I, I wanted 
I knew accounting wasn't enough for me. I, I knew I would never be an accountant, but I also knew accounting would be a great path into business. My parents were teachers, and so if I wanted a career in business, accounting seemed to be a sensible way of doing it And because every business ultimately has a set of numbers behind it. So accounting I recognised as something that would be a great skill, but I was also interested, I suppose, in the um, in the people side, and so I also enrolled in psychology. The I can I tell you the difference in how that that um, process of just enrolment was because I went into the business faculty, and of course it was all process, and I was a number, not a name, and everything worked efficiently and effectively. I wandered into the psych psychology area, and my God, it was a it was like a zoo, but they did care about me. And that sort of um, was, at that point, an illustration, I think, of how, um, unfortunately, how separated business has been from psychology. Long story short, I, I, um, my first role was with Coca-Cola and I, that was in finance. And so as part of that function, I qualified as a CPA, but that was the end point of my finance career rather than the start point. I, I kind of wanted to bookend it just as a as a, you know, a tick, something that I've completed. From there, I moved into learning and development and human resources to pick up the people side of what I was interested in. I moved then into publishing human resources books, which was the product management role, which then led me to White Pages, which was one of the biggest, most widely read books in Australia. So we had millions of people using us every week at the time. This was a number of years ago. And uh, I got very interested there in user behaviour, so how people use the phone directory. And that was the sort of area that I was working in and I did a lot of business case justifications and that sort of stuff at the time. But my brother um, at Christmas whilst I was working for White Pages gave me a book called Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely and it was the perfect fusion of what I would have studied had I had it available to me. Behavioural economics, it's really about the commerce and psychology of and the meeting of those two points and why people make the decisions the way they do, which don't always make rational sense. And so I left White Pages um, and I could see so much opportunity for behavioural economics in the Australian um, marketplace, but no one was telling businesses how to apply it. So I thought that could be my role. I, I review the science, I understand the science, and then I can bring it down into what that means for someone on a day-to-day -day basis in business. So that's the potted history of how I, how I came to develop my own business people patterns. Gosh, now there's so many questions come out of that, and perhaps I'll just, just leap, leap to, to two of them. The, the first one is, I mean, that story you told about going into the accounting faculty and then the psychology faculty, um, I, I can really, really imagine. But it, I mean, it seems your entire career has spanned the, the whole spectrum of, of left brain and right brain type type thinking, um, which for many for many people certainly with historic careers they they tend tended only traditionally to stick in one particular part of their brain how how sort of looking forward how do you how important do you think it is to have to have that sort of overall broad spectrum view in in today's business world that's a terrific question ben and actually i was doing some work um with the world, world congress of accountants last year um because accountants and and many of the 
professional qualifications that we we have those sorts of um, professions that have typically revolved um, uh, had a lot of technical skills that they've had to offer and relied on those as their their area of value well they're looking down the barrel of being replaced as most organizations sorry a lot of functions are by AI and data and offshoring and so People in those sorts of professions are starting to get a little bit anxious, quite rightly, about, well, I what skills do I need to hone that cannot be replaced by an algorithm? And that is where behavioural skills will really be the saviour of a lot of um, white-collar jobs particularly because ultimately it's about uh, the people skills that are going to become so important when other skills, more technical skills uh, that can be more a binary, if this, then that, they'll, they'll of course be dis, um, disappear through in modern technology. Uh, that really bridges very nicely to my second question. And that was about your time um, in white pages, talking about businesses that are being made made irrelevant i mean when you were there you were probably at the cusp as as the old uh, directory started to decline and digital search start started to build what, what was sort of your impressions of, of seeing that that transition take place look at um it has i i expect to become a case study it was in what not to do uh, but you, you see it over and over and again I mean Kodak is the other classic example of you know a very successful organization so the yellow and white pages in Australia were multi-billion dollar um, business and white pages in Australia was the only one in the world that would generate um, revenue and we were talking lots of revenue so we were an interesting business model and people from other companies in other, other parts of the world would visit the White Pages Australia business to understand how we made money from it, not just have a burden of this phone book going uh, on people's doorsteps. So there was a lot to lose, in other words. And the interesting thing, I was there for five years, and over that time Google just completely obliterated the search market and people's behaviour did swing from print to online and everyone could see it happening and yet there wasn't the appetite internally or at least the urgency to um, turn away from the cash cow and regenerate the business. And that is uh, unfortunately what happens typically in organisations. It's like at what point do you bottom out? When When is it crisis enough for you to gamble with the money that you do have still? And, um, I mean, it's a difficult situation for the board and for the CEO. At what point do they call it and say, look, we're going to have to go back before we go forward? And I think one of the only examples I can think of, and I'm sure you may have others, Ben, is um, Netflix, who self-disrupted twice. So not only did they disrupt Blockbuster and by introducing DVDs by mail at the time, but they, Netflix then saw that streaming was going to be the next thing and they uh, changed their business. The cash cow was their DVD distribution. They actually went backwards and said, no, we're going to invest in our back. We're developing content. We're going to go streaming, which we can sell for less. So people pay less for a subscription. But now look at them. 
And I think it's very rare in business to have the appetite to go back before you go forward. And the experience, unfortunately, at uh, Yellow and White Pages was was that. So it it was very interesting to be in that climate, um, but also pretty disheartening. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, we're talking here about a business trying to make the very difficult decision about when to go backwards in order to move forward again. In the context of behaviour, we're talking about individuals and us human beings. We, we also need or should or some of us should perhaps do that with our own careers. Um, I'm sure many of your colleagues, you know, were experts in, in producing phone books, which a bit like the proverbial sort of buggy whip uh, manufacturers of the last century or the old people that used to write, go around lighting the gas lamps. Um have you sort of got any observations or thoughts from a behavioural point of view about how people as individuals can, can can view these decisions in their own personal lives? You're absolutely right, Ben. So the same the same um, biases and the way the same wiring is at play whether you're in a workplace or um, your own own personal life. So staying in jobs too long, staying in relationships too long, not moving house, all of these sorts of things are are personal examples of what I've just um, described in a business context. And that, I think, is why the more people can understand about how we are wired and what really motivates and um, drives behaviour, the more uh, impactful you can be not only in your own personal life but also in your business life because you understand why we make the decisions the way we do. So what we've really been talking about here is what's known as loss aversion. So people are more worried about what they have to lose than what they have to gain. And so me, um, uh, I, can, I can see what the risk is if we do this, but the, what we have to gain might seem more nebulous. And as a result, we're more likely to stick with the status quo and just let, you know, uh, let things roll even if they're, they're going down the gurgler. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. So the same behavioural wiring is at play whether we're wearing our uh, T-shirts and shorts on the weekend or whether we're wearing our business suit uh, in the office during the week. So, Bree, behavioural economics, behavioural science, to me is coming across as being this Pandora's box of understanding that could be applied to a whole host of, of various personal and professional situations. Um Let's let's try and make make this real in the business context. Can you give us I know two or three of the main use cases or the main scenarios or the main areas of an organisation that, that 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 may like this? I mean, is this a technology thing, a finance thing, a marketing thing, a sales thing? You know what I know. Perhaps you could tell us you know where the phone rings for you, where where people are most interested in in applying it in a business context. And the short answer is yes, it's all of those things because you'll find people at every point of that juncture. In terms of where the phone rings and where people usually identify the need, it tends to be more customer-focused um, activity. So how can we increase our conversion, whether that's marketing or sales-led? So how does, our, um, how does our sales force more effectively persuade customers to buy or how does our website or our, our um, email marketing um, convert more effectively? How do we send out a letter uh, for retention purposes that doesn't make people churn? So it's those sorts of um, examples. Often when I'm training people on those 
um, on that basis though. So I, I either do the work for them or I, I train them how they can um, do the work themselves. Uh, the interesting thing always is even if the initial consultation or the initial area of interest is for the external customer, you can use these same techniques for your internal customer. So that means if I teach you how to influence your consumer, your end customer, the person buying your product, you can use these same techniques if you're trying to talk to a supplier about a better deal or if you're trying to get your boss to do something differently. So the um, the opportunity is endless and that's what can feel so overwhelming <laughs> but it's um, but usually the start point is uh, any point of engagement that you are having where you're feeling frustrated that you're not getting the result that you want. So typically it's a customer. It might be people are ignoring my email, people aren't buying, people aren't um, clicking on my website like I would like them to. This is fascinating. So um, I'm wondering whether we might be able to to try out a couple of different examples, perhaps a, a physical example and perhaps a, a digital example. Um, can you think of a couple of examples we might be able to sort of unpack a bit more? Uh, wait, so when you say physical, do you mean like in a shop environment? Or? Yes, some, yeah. you know, some sort of classic retail or face-to-face type scenario, something that's definitely not online. Yeah, so imagine um, many of your listeners, well, every listener is a consumer themselves. So the easiest way to understand behavioural economics is to think of yourself when when you're walking into a shop and you see, um, you know, it might be a furniture shop and the signage says the price was $9.99 and now it's only $5.99. That is going to have a different impact on you depending on how big that font is and whether the 999 was in larger font than the 599 or vice versa. So behavioural science will tell us that when the markdown price, so the cheaper price, the 599, is in a smaller typeface than the initial price, people are going to buy more. So these are all about the subconscious cues um, that people are receiving. So in this case, people are looking for a congruence between it was a big price, it was very large, and now it's a very small price. So that's one illustration of how a point of sale can be changed. There are some caveats around that, but that might give you a sense. And um, some other research that I love talking about, um, possibly because it's set in a bottle shop, but um, imagine you're walking into the bottle shop, there's French music playing uh, the one week that you go in, and then the following week you go in and it's German music. Now, this study uh, monitored what people purchased according to what music was playing. And when it was French music, 77% of wine sold was French. When it was German music, 73% of the wine was sold was German. And when people were asked, did the music have any effect? Well, 86% said what music? Because the music was priming them to purchase particular products in this case, a regional, uh, a different wine from different countries, without them necessarily even consciously processing that information. So all of these environmental um, devices are influencing what we do on a day-to-day basis. So in a consumer environment, you can also do that in the office, of course. So having um, plants in the office is going to be better for the health and the well-being of your um, staff because it's queuing a more natural state and we respond to that. The, the, um, whether you have low ceilings or high ceilings in your office will 
change the way people process information. So there's a lot to it in the in the physical space, and we have to pay a lot of attention um, to where we are when we hold meetings. Um, do, you know, choosing a meeting room often is <laughs> I just want to choose a meeting room where I have enough chairs. And in actual fact, if we were going to optimise that meeting, we'd be putting a lot more thought into do I need a meeting room where the table is rounded, where I have, um, you know, chairs that I can gather around in more circular formation or do I want people to be more antagonistic and be in a more um, uh, angular formation. So I hope that's given you some sort of sense of what um, what the devices we can use in, in terms of the physical environment. It has. And I, I mean, the, the thing that really struck me, other than the sort of broad range of examples there, was particularly with that bottle shop example, how dramatic the impact was we're not we're not talking here about some couple of percent difference one way or the other we're talking about dramatic impacts here completely shifted the um the purchase so uh, and people didn't even realize they were if they were asked of course had you always intended to buy french wine of course that's a yes of course i came in here and <laughs> i wanted to buy french wine they we are not necessarily aware of what messages we're picking up so it goes to there's some research on whether the typeface on a bottle will change your behavior so if it's a handwritten type of looking uh, typeface that will change your perception of that product so yeah there are <laughs> there's an endless array of of things that impact us and um often we don't put enough thought into these sorts of things when we're trying to, for instance, um, imagine you are trying to set up that board meeting to, to table a big transformation project. Well, how can you use that environment to your advantage uh, rather than walking in and having a wall of people that it makes it feel very adversarial? What can you do in terms of the physical layout, in terms of um, the tone, what you know, what aftershave you wear, all these sorts of things will have a bearing on how people are receiving the message that you're that you're presenting. Wow. Can we move on and uh, try and find a, a digital online example? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's um, a lot of the work that I started with with behavioural economics was actually in on websites because websites are a perfect example of trying to influence people to take action when you're not there. And so how, for instance, when I was having my website developed, I, I assumed website developers would know all about this sort of behavioral psychology, but it turned out not to be because eight years later, I'm still doing website reviews. <laughs> but for instance, all of my call to action buttons on my website matched my logo. So my logo's blue, the, the buttons were blue, which made it look very pretty and, and made it look very professional. The problem, though, is that it doesn't necessarily make it behaviourally effective because we're not cueing what the most important action to take is. So what we need to be doing when people are on our websites is to have uh, primary call to actions that are in complementary but contrasting colours. So it is vivid and people know, well, that looks important. I'm going to press that button. So it's those sorts of um, devices that you, or techniques you can use on your website to try and move people through through um, through a digital experience. Yes, I've 
I, I know I, I, we were talking before coming online about um, I have a software business and I've people have been preaching to me about it's not necessarily the good-looking uh, websites that sell the most. It's uh, bad-looking could actually sell better provided it's, it's bad-looking bad in the right sort of way. So it sounds like you and people like you would understand what those differences are. And I think part of my frustration with some of the WordPress templates, for instance, is that they um, are counter to behavioral effectiveness. And so they might look pretty. So they're, they're designed from a graphic perspective. So they look impressive, but they don't help the visitor find what they need to do and execute. You're not nudging them in the right direction. So yeah, I, I would absolutely endorse that. So you don't have to be beautiful in order to be effective. So, Bree, this, I guess, begs the question for me is why aren't there behavioural economists uh, everywhere? I mean, it seems like it's such a crucial skill to, uh, to, to not only life in general but business in particular. Yes, it, it has been one thing that's perplexed me a little, Ben, is why aren't behavioural economists everywhere? I think part of it is... Uh, and a lot of the training that I do, for instance, in the first third of a presentation, um, my message has to be around why we need behavioural economics. In other words, why um, why don't we know how people are influenced? Because we have this innate sense of um, confidence that because we are human, we know how other humans receive information and we know how other humans are um, should be influenced. Unfortunately, that those assumptions are wrong and we need to rewire ourselves. So when I'm talking to people about behavioural economics, even eight years later, I have to first build an appetite to say this is why life is harder than it needs to be. This is why we are hitting our head up against a brick wall. This is why websites don't have a conversion in the high 90%. It's because we've been assuming the wrong things about how people are uh, make decisions now that people then once people are receptive that's when I can start to talk to them about uh, the role of behavioral economics and how it it meets a gap that other um, forms of for instance customer insights don't so a lot of companies invest in focus groups and customer surveys and all of these sorts of things but that 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 won't yes that won't give you the answer ultimately um, because that's all about rationalised behaviour or justified behaviour rather than real behaviour. So why don't we have more behavioural economists? Um, uh, well, partly it's because people don't – we're arrogant to think uh, we don't need to know more about how people behave because we're human. <laughs> um, partly it's because the qualification itself is relatively new. Um, and I think the third element is that and again, this is something that I like to share with people when we're in training, that we don't often think of ourselves and our roles in organisations as changing behaviour. So fair enough if you if you call yourself a change manager, <laughs> that is a clear case of it, but you don't turn up to work as a finance analyst and think my role is to change behaviour. As a marketer, as a salesperson, you know, I'm I'm selling stuff, you know, or I'm I'm a marketer, I'm putting communications out. All of us ultimately are need to be behaviour change experts and so I think you don't necessarily need to be a behavioural economist but you do need to be an expert in how to use the science of behaviour to shape outcomes. 
Um, so, uh, so whether you're a formal behavioural economist, uh, look, I don't think that's required. I think you just need to um, tap into what's available to you. Now, just listening to what you said there, Bree, to me, if there's one thing anybody takes from this conversation, it's what you just said. You completely nailed it for me there. Thank you. You'll have to repeat it to me at some point, Ben, because I, I never listen to myself. That's the challenge. <laughs> now, um, I'm going to be a bit naughty and throw in a, another question that you're not prepared for, but it just, just makes me think. We've had an election quite recently here in Australia, which um, I think has surprised many people about the, uh, about the outcome, <laughs> including uh, both, both of the main political parties, um, in fact, all political parties. Have you got any thoughts about how the the campaign was run from various sides in terms of uh, in terms of changing behaviour or changing voting behaviour or rather lack of changing in voting behaviour? Oh, Ben, I, I wish I could tell you I paid a lot of attention to the campaigns and I didn't. Um, but what I can say is, firstly, polling and the um, inadequacies inadequacies of polling have has sort of begun, um, there's been a light shone on that and that co that coincides in a business context with things like relying on customer surveys and uh, focus groups and any time we're asking people what they think they'll do, we should be taking that with a massive grain of salt because intended behaviour doesn't equal real behaviour all the time. My example from white pages was we used to run focus groups. What would make you use the print directory more? We would ask people, well, if you put in a schedule of bin weeks, you know, if this week's recycling and next week's green waste, that would be helpful. The book's already on the counter. I can flip to it. Okay, it's green waste this week. I'm fine. But the real behaviour when we need to put our bin out is that we just look to what our neighbours have done. And so there's a gap between what we say and what we do. So... My point being, polling in any sort of electoral cycle, we saw it with the American elections and we saw it with Brexit also, so that this pattern isn't unique to Australia. What people say and, and what they do aren't necessarily the same. In terms of the political environment, um, you would usually say that status quo is what people like to preserve and so the incumbent always has an advantage unless there's a dramatic sense of um, injustice and, you know, a real desire to change, which often uh, obviously happened in the UK and, and the US. So the incumbent usually has an advantage. I think a campaign that is built around um, not losing what you already have, so that's loss aversion, is usually more effective than going for an aspiration. And I think um, the opposition, the, the Labor Party in Australia didn't, it's been said that they didn't articulate their message well. You know, that there could be some merit in it. Um, my my lesson, I guess, in and my learning from behavioural economics is this, the, the rule that we usually are thinking fairly superficially around most things and so we're normally going to be um, persuaded by our gut instinct and then we post-rationalise it by looking for facts and figures to support that. So that's why um, things have to be clearly articulated and people need to get a, give a, get a sense, I think, in a political environment. If, am I going to be better or worse off and I'm going to vote in that way? They're not necessarily going to get into the nuts and bolts of any policy decision. That's, that's fascinating. So it, 
I'm really interested in your point around its gut instincts that are post-rationalised. That that fits in with a lot of you, a lot of people, a lot of things you've said so far. It's almost like the sub, there's so much power in the subconscious that that's actually where the uh, the fundamental decisions are being made. There's um, something I share in the training, which uh, I love. It was a survey of business executives, and they were asked to describe their decision making style. And say, I don't know what the numbers were, but say 30% of them said they were data-driven and another uh, 30% said they were uh, empirical, so they like to test and learn. Only 10% of the executives said they were gut instinct or um, make decisions on that basis. Then the follow-up question to them was, well, if the available data contradicted your gut, what would you do? And effectively nine out of 10 of them said, well, I would look for more data or or I would reanalyze the data. In other words, people that said they were data-driven would reject the data until it coincided with something that was obviously happening in their gut. So people think that they're data-driven, they think they're analytical. In actual fact, that's just a form of currency. And what they're looking for is data to coincide with something they've already decided about only 10% of the people that said well if the data contradicted your gut what would you do only 10% of people said that they would follow the course suggested by the data (laughs) I think this is critical in business because oftentimes people throw up numbers as their decision making or I'm a data driven um, decision maker or your business case numbers don't stack up and all this sort of thing that's not the problem the problem is you're not influencing them for another psychological reason. It's not the numbers. It's that, for instance, they're anxious about proceeding with the idea, they can't be bothered because it all seems too hard, or they're confused. So those are the three um, core reasons that it comes down to. People are either can't be bothered, they're confused, or they're worried about proceeding. So that's my riff, I suppose, on data. I think there's it's a misnomer, and um, people think they're data-driven when in actual fact they're they're looking as a rationalisation. Well, Bree, thank you so much for opening our eyes to this wonderfully powerful um, science to, uh, to, to, to create change. If, if people wanted to um, try something literally this afternoon at work or at home, just a sort of experiment, have you got a little sort of tip or two about things, things, they, could, uh, things they could try? I think they could try. Um, look, that's a bit. It's dancing with uh, dancing with danger, Ben. If they have pricing, I'll start them with some pricing tips because most of us end up having to put some numbers on a page at some point. With pricing, a few tips. Um, use the principle of anchoring. So that means you have to contextualize the number. So back back to the example earlier, nine ninety nine marked down to five ninety nine. You wouldn't just want to say, "Hey, the price is five ninety nine." So always try and contextualize your price point against something else. So in a business case, for instance, you might say, look, last year we ran a similar project and it was going to be 50000 but in this, in this scenario, I think we can get away with forty. And so we've anchored the expectation of price to something that is in our favor. So suddenly people feel like they've saved 10000 on the, on the project, for instance. So there's that. You can also do things like um, whether you use the dollar sign or not can have a bearing on on how people perceive a number. So uh, a study was done in a cafe off a menu and 
when they had the dollar sign next to the um, next to the number versus not, people spent less money because they were remembered that they, they were reminded of the negative associations with money. So every time we put a dollar sign next to a number, people get a little bit anxious and they tend to um, pull away a little. So there are a couple of um, small things, a little bit of numbers psychology for you, but there's there's plenty more tips um, <laughs> available. If they just jump on my website, there's lots of stuff there for them for free. Well, let's let's go there now. Tell me, how, how can people um, find out more from you or reach out or connect or take advantage of your wonderful fortnightly newsletter? <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Uh, yes, my website is Bri Williams, B-R-I, williams.com.au. Uh, feel free to have a look around there. There's um, an opportunity to sign up to the free news that, as Ben mentioned, comes out every two weeks with some tips. There's also a, a big free resources section. So you can do a free audit of your business and you'll get the results uh, sent to you. You can also do that for your own habits. So do a habits inventory to see how well or poorly your habits stack up. Um, so there's a few few things to um, look in the free resources section. One of my favourites is the behavioural intelligence quiz. So if you think you're a, a master, a mastermind in behavioural techniques, um, I tempt you to do the quiz and see if that's uh, that's real or not. So jump on my website breewilliams.com.au or please um, reach out via LinkedIn and we can connect. Well, Bree, thank you ever so much for your time today. It's been wonderful speaking. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. A key point for me out of the conversation with Brie was her statement that behaviourally effective does not necessarily look pretty. It's actually quite a deep comment. It's basically saying that you need to put some tension, you need to put some disruption out there. Otherwise, it doesn't nudge people to actually want to change. Comfort in itself is actually a, uh, a preventer of, of change, which I think is quite a significant message for those in the change and transformation business. Well, thanks again to Bree for that fantastic conversation. I'll put in the show notes a link to her website where you can use all of those resources and also a link to Dan Arley's book, Predictably Irrational. Well, that's just about it for this week. But before we go, I must say thank you. We've had a lot more people tune into the show since we started upping our rate of release earlier this year. And I'm really keen to make sure that we are satisfying your needs as much as possible. So really appreciate it if you could spend a couple of minutes and drop me an email. The address is ben at smartbusinesstransformation.com. That's ben at smartbusinesstransformation.com. And smart business transformation is all one word. You could drop me an email just with a few words or a sentence or two about what your key business challenge is currently. Um, let me know whether it's confidential or not. I won't mention you by name if it's confidential. But I'm really keen to understand what the key business issues are you are facing at the moment so we can make sure that we're making the future episodes of this show very relevant to you. Anyway, until we meet next time, do please keep going with that growth mindset. Mindset.